You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. So good afternoon. So today's class is in the memory of Mordechai ben Avram, his Neshama Shrav and Aliyah. So the Torah that we learn today should be in his memory. And it should only be for a blessing for his children, friends and family and so on. Today, as we continue into the story of the Jewish people going out of the Egypt, and we continue discussing the last three of the plagues that are mentioned in this week's uh, Torah reading, we also come to the laws pertaining, in this week's Torah reading, the laws pertaining the Paschal offering and the Korban Pesach, the laws pertaining to the Jewish people during the last plague of the ten plagues, and for the future of how Moshe describes of what those laws were to be when the Jewish people were going to bring the Paschal offering in the future generations. They say a story about once this uh, rabbi from Jerusalem comes to a synagogue which was full of very wealthy individuals, many of them judges and lawyers, and he gets up to make an appeal for his uh, yeshiva that he has in Jerusalem. As he gets up to the stage, to the podium, to make an appeal, he sees that there's a note on the podium that says, five minute max. The rabbi is thinking to himself, how can I give a whole appeal if I want to tell them about the advantages and the beauty of Jerusalem, Israel, my yeshiva that's there, just giving a welcome to the different individuals and addressing every single judge and lawyer that exists in this room will take five minutes. How did they just want me to do it in five minutes? Finally, the rabbi comes up with a genius idea and he says, listen here, he gets up there and he starts a story as follows. He says, you know, heaven and hell are side by side one another. And there's a wall that's in between. And because of the heat that was in hell, a wall, this wall started deteriorating. And the people in heaven started complaining and saying, demanding that the people of hell pay for the wall to be able to fix the wall. It's their fire, it's their heat that's causing the wall to deteriorate. They should be the one to pay for it. The people in hell said, too bad, tough luck, you want, you don't like it. Join us here, whatever it may be. And the fight continued to brew between the people of heaven and the people of hell until it came in front of God. God should decide and be the arbitrator who should have to pay for the wall. And of course, you know what happens? And he says, you know what, I guess my time's up, I can't finish the story. All the people in the room, the judges, the lawyers, the, the legal question, they want to know what's happened, what's going to happen, how's it happened, well, what's the answer? He says, I'm sorry, my time's up, I don't want to get in trouble, uh, my time's up, I can't finish the story. They said, you know what, we'll make an exception, today you can finish, the, you can go over five minutes. He says, ah, I can go over five minutes? Fine. And so the people of hell won. He says, you know why the people of hell won? Because... The people of heaven had no lawyers. All the lawyers were in hell. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so, one of the questions that we talk about, and one of the most difficult challenges in education, of what does it mean, and what does it take to properly educate a person? Educating a child. How do we get children to be interested in the things that we teach them? Whatever it may be whether maybe from Jewish, religious, secular, ethical, moral values, how do we impart, how do we give, and how do we make sure? What is the ingredient to be able to teach the next generation and educate our children 
and giving them the proper tools that they should be able to do and properly follow what they're taught. And this is probably a question that has been asked for the millennium. And all of these, this type of question we can figure out by looking into this week's Torah reading. What do I mean by looking into this week's Torah reading? If you take any survey that they did in Israel especially or throughout the world in Jewish people, what is the most common festival that people observe? What is the most common book that Jewish people know of? It is not the Tehillim. It is not the Talmud. It is not even the Chumash. The most commonly celebrated holiday is Passover. Every person celebrates Passover in some shape or form. Every Jewish person celebrates. Some, some it may be in the morning, some in the afternoon, some two weeks later, some two weeks earlier. But everybody knows about Passover. They know that there's a concept of a Haggadah. There may be Jewish people in Israel who never heard of Kol Nidre, who never been to a shul for Neila, never fasted on Yom Kippur, but they were by a Seder. It's an interesting phenomenon. And this is found in surveys and surveys as they keep on looking at different people of how they react to different things and the things that they know about. What is the most common celebrated festival that you have done? In America, Hanukkah is probably a tight competition, but in Israel especially, Passover is hands down. Most Jewish people celebrate Passover. And I'm talking about celebrating actually acknowledge that there's a holiday of Passover in some shape or form. What is it? that causes that people that have never celebrated Yom Kippur won't walk into a shul on Rosh Hashanah, but Passover they know about. The prayer called Nidre, they don't know, but they know Avadi Mayinu with the Manishtana, which Israeli boy doesn't know the song, the Manishtana. Chad Gadya. Even the most things that seem like non-essential part of the uh, Haggadah, they even know about. What is it in that education, what is it about the holiday of Passover that strikes a chord with so many who generally don't even think of it. So before we get to that, we will see that in the concept and in the story of Passover actually lies the fundamentals of education and why that night is the night that educates and people go away remembering it. But before we go to that, just an interesting caveat that we find about Passover. That Passover, it says that Elijah the prophet comes to visit everybody's home Passover night. There are two times that Elijah the prophet comes to visit. By circumcision and by Passover. Why does Elijah come to Passover? Why doesn't he come to Rosh Hashanah to Shul to the Shofar? Why doesn't he come to Chuppah? Why does he come to circumcision? Out of all the mitzvahs and all the life cycles and events that happen to an individual, the circumcision is that Elijah comes to. And what other event, what other holidays, Passover, why those two? There was a great rabbi from the rabbis of Jerusalem about 200 years ago. His name was Ramosha Chagiz. He says in one of his explanations, he says, because when it comes to the story of Passover, one of the laws of Passover is that if you're not circumcised, you're not allowed to eat from the Passover lamb. A non-Jew, for example, was not allowed to taste from the Paschal offering. Therefore, being that Elijah the prophet is the one that's by the circumcisions, he's the only one that can testify if everybody around the table is circumcised. So therefore, he has to come to both of them. He comes to the circumcision and he comes to the Passover as holiday because he's the one that can testify to those two accounts. But then there's even another explanation and an interesting one that takes us back a little bit historically. During the time of the first temple, after the passing of King Solomon, we know that the kingdom of the Jewish people were split. There was Rechavim, who was the son of Solomon, who continued to be 
two and a half tribes in the area of Jerusalem where the Holy Temple was built. And then there was a fellow by the name of Yeravim ben Avat. He was the king of the ten tribes, which today are the ten lost tribes. But he was the king of the ten tribes. And that king of the ten tribes who created a temple, so to speak, with the golden calf to avoid Jews going to Jerusalem because he was afraid they then might go to Rechavim. After Yeravim and further on after that, there was more kings. And most of the kings that were the kings of the ten tribes were idolaters and did not uh, lead the Jewish people in a good way. One of the ones that are most well-known, in fact, not him, but his wife is probably more well-known than him, is Achav and Jezebel, who they led astray the Jewish people for a um, terrible amount of time. Not only that, Jezebel, in her terrible behavior, went and tried to kill all the Jewish prophets like this. The non-Jewish prophets, the Baal, who they were called, the idolater prophets, should be the ones to reign on the Jewish people. And that would be the Jewish people's governing body, so to speak, at the time. Elijah the prophet, we know today as Elijah the prophet, as an angel, lived his physical life at that time. And Elijah the prophet was the one that got the Jewish people to finally come to their senses and recognize and say, either you serve God or you serve idols. You can't have it both ways. And he went up on Mount Carmel, as you remember, and he was the one that poured the water all over and the fire came down from heaven. And that's when the Jewish people proclaimed, Hashem, Hu Elohim, God is our God. But because of the desecration, and because of the rampant idolatry that was at the time, Elijah the prophet made a promise. Because Elijah the prophet was from Pinchas, or is Pinchas, and he was a person who didn't take things lightly, he was very zealous in what he did, very zealous in the way he behaved. And he saw such a rampant idolatry that he said, no rain should befall the Jewish people until they go away from their bad ways of idolatry. And it was a terrible drought that was for a very long time. God was upset with his reaction, by him just making a blanket statement about every single one of the Jewish people that they don't uh, observe or they're not keeping to the covenant that God has given them. And he said, what are you talking about? They do keep the covenant. They keep the covenant, which what thing is called a covenant? Circumcision is considered a covenant. And the Paschal offering is considered a covenant. There God made Elijah the prophet and said, that from now on, you're going to have to attend every single circumcision to watch and to see how every Jewish person circumcises their child. And at the time when the child, when the parents who had just a newborn baby and at eight days old, they're taking this child and putting that child literally under the knife, self-sacrifice, you're going to attest to the fact that that's happening and therefore you're going to have to be by every circumcision. Because he's by every circumcision, he also has to be by every single Paschal, or Paschal Seder to see that, yes, these same Jewish people that you spoke out against are observing Passover. What we see over here is something unique, but interesting common denominator, back to what we started saying is, Passover being the most observed holiday amongst even secular, most secular Jews, is Passover is one of the most observed holidays, as well as circumcision. You can find people who have no relationship with religion whatsoever, but they will circumcise their child. And this is even under the greatest restrictions, whether it was under communism, whether it was under Roman rule, Jewish people always circumcise their children regardless of what happened, to, uh, to the greatest extent. And this is what Elijah the prophet, an interesting thing is that these two events, which Elijah the prophet bemoaned, he now comes to a test, and this has become one of the staples, if you want to call it, that almost every Jewish family, regardless of what level of observance they're on, all observe. So what we see over here is 
something very unique. First of all, that God was telling Elijah the prophet, we never give up on a Jew. As much as the Jew may be a rampant idolater, as much as they may serve idolatry in every shape or form, a Jew has within themselves a pintalayid, a godly soul that can never be erased, and they will always eventually come to understand and appreciate godliness. But what we see as well is that we come to the understanding and appreciation that when it comes to the story of Passover, there is something within the story of Passover that is underlining this idea that no matter where the Jew goes, has that ability to connect and relate to the story of Passover. What is it within the story of Passover which gives us the ability to so be excited that regardless of whatever Jewish level observance the person may be on, he will automatically come to a Passover Seder. They will then observe the Passover Seder. What is it within Passover? And because of this, we can come to understand better the concept of what it means education. Because that's what we'll see, that Passover and education and the way Passover was taught that the Jewish people are all intertwined. Now when we talk about education, we're not talking about something which is uh, some tyrannical type of behavior. Not some type of way that you're punishing the child if they won't come. Or it's not even a hierarchy to say, well, you have to take that position. We're not talking about education to something which is forced upon a person. We're talking about an education where a person wants to do something, not only wants to, but they're also interested in the actual idea behind it and following the halachic obligations and what, what it may mean into observing the Passover Seder. In general, when we talk about the Passover Seder, the Passover Seder tells us that everybody should be by the Passover Seder. Every single person, every single child should be there to observe the Passover Seder. How do we get every single human being, every single Jewish person, to come to appreciate what the Passover Seder is? So let's look into the story. Let's see what happens. This week, as we mentioned, we read about the last three uh, plagues that happened with the Jewish people. And finally, the Jewish people are led out of exile. Finally, three million Jews march out of the doors of Egypt in middle of broad daylight. And finally, they go through the sea and they're there, the freedom on their way to getting the Torah. How did the Jewish people celebrate the exodus of Egypt? So let's take for a moment how others celebrate freedom. Generally, look at any war, any type of behavior, how it's celebrated. We celebrate the warriors. They were victorious. They were able to fight over the war, and therefore they walked out. And we celebrate what their talents were, what their qualities, what they did. Take any type of, whether it's a revolutionary war, the civil war, Talk about any war in any American history or any other history. They're going to talk about the talent and the quality of the soldiers that waged the war. It would be only natural that after the Jewish people are victorious over Egypt, Egypt is sunk into the ground, drowns in the sea, Jewish people are out to freedom. We should talk about the glorious soldiers of the Jewish army that were able to make it out. But there's no mention of it whatsoever. Not only that, there is no mention about the revenge and the ability of what we've done to the Egyptians. We talk about, we sink to God and thank God for what happened to the Egyptians that they sank into the Red Sea. But it doesn't focus. The story of Passover, if you look at the Passover of Seder, or even the way Moshe talks to the Jewish people after the events of the Exodus of Egypt, what does Moshe say? Moshe all of a sudden comes to the Jewish people and says, let me tell you a story. 
Your children may ask, what happened? You're going to tell them a story. And in fact, in four different places, twice in the book of Exodus, I said, say three times in the book of Exodus, once in the book of Deuteronomy, does Moshe mention the words? He says, if your children will ask you what events happened, you will then tell them, we are having a Paschal offering because God took us out of Egypt. And then he says again in Exodus chapter 13, you shall tell your child that because of this, that's why we are eating the matzah to remember of how we left Egypt in a haste. You will tell your ch- if your child asks you tomorrow, tell him saying, this is why we eat the maror, this is why we eat the matzah. And again in the book of Deuteronomy, your child will ask you tomorrow, what happened? And therefore you will tell them, God saved us out of Egypt. All of it that Moshe is telling the Jewish people is, he doesn't say, tell them that we were the greatest, greatest warriors. He says, tell them a story. Explain to them. Show them. Show them what happened. What is, the God, what is the Torah telling us here? Why four times does he say, tell them a story? Our sages tell us that this is talking about the four different types of children. And in the Passover Haggadah, we mention the four types of children, and we mention each one of these sayings that Moses mentions. And he refers to every single type of child. He refers to a wicked child who has no interest in being by a Seder table. Not only has no interest, but is detested. Asks these rambunctious questions. Why are you celebrating this type of Seder? It even goes as far to a child who doesn't even know what to ask. It's completely apathetic to what's happening. And then it goes to a child to the tongue, who just says, what's this? And there's even a debate, which one's worse? Totally, who is totally apathetic, has no idea, no clue, can't even open his mouth? Or somebody that sits there and goes, what's this? Well, I couldn't care less either, but at least they say something. Or is the fact that they say something worse, is the fact that they say something better? And that you can decide which way you think. And then finally about this scholarly son, who starts asking analytical and intellectual questions of when things could be eaten. But Moshe, interestingly enough, doesn't mention them in the order the way they're brought in the Haggadah. In the Haggadah, when we talk about the Passover Seder, it mentions them in order of their intelligence. It goes the intellectual son, the Chacham. Then it goes to the Rasha, who's the evil son. But he's still a smart kid, but he's just not interested. And then it goes to the Tam, which is the simple son. And then to the son who is apathetic, has no, no clue what to ask and what to say. However, when Moshe begins... Moshe starts it off from a different way. Moshe addresses first the question of the wicked son. Then he addresses the question of the apathetic son. Then the son of the simple son, and only then the smart son. Because what was Moshe telling him? Moshe was telling him, you know, it's very easy for a parent or a teacher to educate a child who's interested. As good as the questions are, as long as the kid shows an interest, it's very easy to educate the child. But when you have a child who challenges you, who asks you questions that maybe you're not so comfortable with. What are you going to do then? Say, hey, just listen, I'm too bad. Or are you going to explain to them and give them the understanding? Or sometimes you have a child who's apathetic and you just say, forget it. This kid has a farshtapta cup, as they say in Yiddish, has a blocked head, nothing doing. You can talk to the wall, even the wall gives you a better response. And say, why should I bother? Let him just go and he'll become a carpenter or become, I don't know, a cementer. Who knows what he'll do? Something that he doesn't have to use his head for. So therefore, the Torah tells us no. Moshe says no. Every single child's important. Every single child has to be there by the Seder table. Every single child's question is important. Even that child who doesn't have a question. Even that child who seems apathetic. 
Moshe says, if you want to know what's the key to education, is tell them a story. What Moshe was telling them was that when we, are, that when we have the challenge of education before us, Moshe says, every single child, you need to make sure you involve them in the Passover Seder. But the question is how? How do I make sure that by this Seder that seems long, elongated Seder, how are they all going to come and be interested? We're talking about a child who is wicked, a child who is apathetic, a child who is simple, even the smart child. How do I get them? How do I draw them? Moshe wants every single child by the Seder. Moshe addresses every single one of the children. But how does he address them? And with this we come to what, and Moshe has a key word, that he says in every single one of the languages how he addresses the different children, which help us understand and give us the ability, which gives us the key to education. Next uh, Tuesday is the 10th of Shvat. The 10th of Shvat is the day that the Rebbe assumed leadership and is the day of the passing of the previous Rebbe. One of the first things that the previous Rebbe did when he came to America was found an organization called Merkez Liyani Chinuch a organization for the furtherance of education of Jewish children. And that started first by making Shabbos parties and uh, different going, opening schools and, and so on. It was called the Educational Arm of Chabad Lubavitch. And until today, the ones that send out the shluchim to all the wor- around the world is from the Merkaz Liyan Echinuch for education. That means it's for education. And the Rebbe realized the education and at that time the Rebbe started a magazine for Jewish children that the Rebbe was an editor involved of and all these types of things that happened. But what is the key in education is what the Torah tells us when it comes to the story of Pesach. And that is the two words that Moshe continuously repeats when it comes to the story of Passover. He says, And you will tell it to your child. Over here, when it talks about a son who is apathetic, does not ask any questions. Rashi tells us, What does it mean, You will tell your child? The word higadita comes from the word agada. Tell them stories. Tell them things that will open up their heart. Attract them. Find a way that the language to speak to them, to get them connected, that they should feel involved. You know, the word agada. In the Talmud, there are many different types of parts of the Talmud. There's parts that are analytical, which halachic, delve into different types of ways of what happens in the legalese, if you want to call it. It goes into explanatory teachings of the Talmud, explanatory teachings of the Torah. But then there's a major section of the Talmud which is called Agada. Agada literally means stories or more midrashic interpretations which many will say don't have much relevance, if you want to call it. But the brother of the Maharal, the Maharal was Rabbi Yehuda Lohi, a famed Kamalist, his brother, Reb Chaim ben Bitzal, explains, and he takes the word Haggadah that we read on Passover, and the word Agadah, which also means stories, and they're all from the same root word. And in Hebrew, the word to tie, to connect, is Le'egod, to bind. He says as follows, What causes a person to connect with the values of the Torah? You can learn laws, and the laws are one place, and you're someplace else. You can learn theory, and theory is one place, and you're someplace else. What causes a person to connect, to become one with the Torah, are the stories that are mentioned in the Torah. What causes us to understand and to become, feel one with it, is when you experience it. 
when it's not just said about a theory, about a logic, about an analyzation, but when you and the idea are able to experience that same connection. Over here when Moshe was telling the Jewish people, if your child will ask, or even if your child doesn't ask, the child doesn't has apathetic to what you're doing. Connect with them. Have an experience with them. Make them live and appreciate the greatness of the Torah. Make them feel that they're part of it. Don't just tell them the story of the Passover in theory. Don't just tell them about the laws of what they should or should not do. But make them feel part of the idea while the, while the knowledge and all the intellect can be all beautiful ideas. I can analyze it. I can think about it. I can theorize about it. I can write essays about it. But it's all wonderful. But what does it have to do with me? You can have a person and tell them about the greatest things. They can learn about the greatest things. They can learn about antelopes in Zimbabwe. They can learn about the penguins in Alaska. But what does it have to do with them? If it's not a feeling that they're part of, they have to feel part of it. Tell your child, tell them the story and make the story come alive that they should feel part of it. Make them experience Passover. Not just sit there like a bunch of dumbbells sitting by a Seder table. But they should be there feeling part of it as they are part of the Seder table. Don't just give over education. Don't just give over information. There's a very famous saying they used to say, um, nobody's going to remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Whereas Einstein used to say, what's considered a good education is not what's left in the head of the child after you've... Well, I'm sorry. So what's considered a good education is what the child remembers after he forgot everything he learned. The difference between a teacher and an instructor is a teacher makes the child feel, changes the passion, the desire, the want of what the child... gives the child an experience. An instructor gives over information. You have a college instructor walks over in front of a thousand people, gives information. Those that listen, those that didn't listen, those that are going to listen later to the recording, those that somebody recorded for them. But there's no passion, there's no excitement. You can have a person walk inside all excited, passionate. You may have said nothing. Nothing that you may consider consequential in their knowledge that they have to learn. But it gave them the excitement, the passion that they should learn about. That's the difference between a teacher and an instructor. The same idea is also when we talk about the mitzvah of the Higadat Alevincha. The Higadat Alevincha, where the Torah is telling, in this week's Torah reading, Moshe is telling the Jewish people, don't just tell them the laws. Don't just tell them what happened when we, let that, when we went out of Egypt. Allow them to experience the going out of Egypt. This is where they'll feel, and that's the continuation, and that's how Judaism continues. This idea, how do we do it in a practical way, was something that the Rebbe was able to bring in the most relevant pa- ways. In 1981, on Chalabai Yitzukis, in the middle of the holiday of Sukkis, every single, um, usually from then, from 1981, the Rebbe would make a, um, a celebration, a special rally, it was called, a gathering for all the Jewish children. And in 1981, the Rebbe began a, a launched a campaign and an organization which was called Sivos Hashem, the Army of Hashem. And what the Rebbe said, he's going to open up an international organization, an international campaign, in which this was going to be called the Army of Hashem. And its point was that it was for children from a day old until 13, or for boys and 12 for girls, that they will be part of the Army of Hashem. The commander-in-chief is God, the missions are the mitzvahs, and you will get medals 
and ranks and you go up in ranks, the more you do and the more mitzvahs you do. And I remember as a child, we got a rank book and went the verses that we had to study and the missions that we accomplished and we were able to go up, make it a five-star general and you get hats and uniforms and medals and all the wonderful things. Now for children, this was the most greatest thing possible as you can imagine. But there were some people who frowned upon this idea. Not children, but adults. Not only adults, but big educators. And there was this very well-known educator who wrote a letter to the Rebbe frowning upon this idea, saying, where do we find in Judaism that we should educate children about war, about armies? This is not a Jewish method. War and army, this is seemingly something which is left for Esau, not for Jacob. Why are we teaching children about armies? And this was an educator who wrote this to the Rebbe. The Rebbe responded, and actually the letter is in English, where the Rebbe responds to him and says, it says as follows. He says, we currently live in America, and not only in America, but all around the world, where, Jew, where children, in general, their biggest problem is subservience, following rules, listening to what they're being told. We live in a time where children believe that their parents made mistakes, or their parents even think that their children should, they should be listening to their children and not the other way around. We live in a time where children have a sense of entitlement, and therefore the concept of listening or having some type of moral compass of what they should follow is deteriorating. What is the best way to educate a child? Giving them A, self-confidence, and B, at the same time recognizing that they should have a higher calling that they have to answer to, is being in an army. An army is not a detriment to their education, but on the contrary, is an experience that they can experience and actually have in their life that they now can live as Jewish people committed and subservient to what God tells them to do out of a positive recognition of who they are, not because they feel boggled down and feel troubled that they, vey, they have to experience Judaism. That means Judaism, an education that is done through the right channels, by giving the child through their own understanding, through their own appreciation, through their own methods of learning, will have more of an eternal um, uh, impact on those children than if you were to just talk down and tell them what they have to do. You can stand in a child and talk until you're blue in the face. And a moment after you finish talking to them, they'll be exactly back what, you did, what they did. Why? Because it was, they didn't even go one ear to go out the other. But if you allow them to experience what was going on, allow them to stand, appreciate from their own purview, that will have a lasting impact. The concept of Tivis Hashem was that the child recognizes when I do a mitzvah, I go up a rank. When I don't fulfill my mission, I am not able to go up the rank. I have to follow orders. That gives the child themselves that understanding, that ability to climb the ranks, recognize what they're doing, and ultimately feel accomplished as well. This is the concept when we talk about education. Education means experiencing with the child together. Where the parent and child, the educator and the educated, work together through the pragmatics of learning and experiencing of whatever they're happening. What Moshe was telling the Jewish people, Tell your child, don't just tell your child. As the word v'higadeta means to connect. Connect with your child and recognize what are they learning? What are they up to? To give them that experience that it's not just you're talking to them. Give them something that will draw them and allow them to become part of that experience. If you think about it, the Haggadah, the way it was written, is a unique book that there is nothing like it in Judaism. The Haggadah includes in it 
a bunch of different facets of education. Way before Gardner's theory of multiple levels of intelligence, of how you can teach, there was already the Haggadah that came along with multiple levels of explanations and of experiences for the person sitting at the Seder table. Think about it. The Haggadah begins by telling us it's a story. Who doesn't want to hear a good story? And not only is it a story, but it's a story that's most relevant, regardless of how smart you are, regardless of how brilliant you may be. This is a story that we're all obligated to be part of. That's number one. Then, we don't just sit back by the Haggadah and remember something, oh, we're not going to talk about what might happen to my great-grandmother 2,000 years ago. I look at you, okay, that was good for her, but what does it have to do with me? But we start off the Haggadah understanding and realizing the Haggadah is something that's relevant, that's practical. We all have an Egypt. Every single day we need to experience the exodus of Egypt. That's not something that happened many years ago. But even more so. It's not just parents talking about, oh, you know, my great-grandparents, what they had to live through. So it's okay, but thank God we live now in a free country. No, it's telling us that every single one of us is living through that in some shape or form. But the Haggadah goes even more than that. Tell me, where other level, what other Passover, what other holiday do we have things on the table that are meant to ask questions? Why do we dip twice so that the children should ask a question? Why do we lead all the different experience that we have during the Seder? Is that the children should ask questions because we want them to be involved. In fact, in the Yiddish, there's a saying in the, when we, come, we start the Seder table, when we start the Seder, there's a Yiddish that goes for every one of the 15 steps of the Seder. Like, where else in Judaism do you have an order? Okay, table of contents, this is what we're going through today. This is on the program. Never. This is only the, only the Seder, the Passover Seder. But what's the first thing is? That when the parents come home from shul, the first thing we do is make Kiddush so the children turn and fall asleep. The whole Seder is meant to be an experience of the children. And children doesn't just mean an age, but also a level of intelligence. Where else and what other, what other program do you have in Judaism that there's questions in, this, in, the, in the book? Only by the Seder. We ask questions. Why? What? We're meant to ask questions. And all of it's about asking questions. Because questions is insightful, intrigues the child, makes them think, makes them understand, and wants them to be involved. Education is about getting them involved. This idea also coincides with what the Alter Rebbe talks about in Hebrew. The word for education is chinuch. But we also find that when the altar was made, and when the holy temple was made, it was called Chanukah Samazbeach, the rededication like ever the word Hanukkah Sabai is the rededication of a home. When you make something new, it also comes from the same root word Chinuch, Hanukkah, which also means the dedication of the Holy Temple comes from the word Chinuch. What does it have to do with education? What does education and dedication have to do with the same thing? And the Altreb explains and says, if you look in the Torah, when they rededicated the Holy Temple, they started bringing sacrifices. Why are you bringing sacrifices? Yes, the temple needs sacrifices, that's what they brought. But why is that a way of dedicating the temple? And the Altareb explains because the way you get somebody to dedicate, to be educated, is if you draw them in. You have to have like a pull. You have to have something that's going to excite them. The same ideas about the bringing those presents to the holy temples would draw the people in, presents, excitement, and that's what drew them in to be able to understand and appreciate what was going on. The same ideas in anything in life. And if we want somebody to be interested in it, we have to be a pull, there has to be a connection, there has to be an experience that they will want to relate to it. With this now we understand 
that why is it when it comes to every single mitzvah? What is the way that generally people look at how do we educate our children in doing mitzvahs? From a young age, we teach them to wear a yarmulke, we teach them to wear tzitzis, we teach them to read Hebrew, we teach them all these things so they should become used to doing the mitzvot. But if you look at all the things that we generally make them accustomed to, they're not even biblical commandments. Wearing a yarmulke doesn't say it here in the Torah. And all the things are more custom, so they should have that feeling for Judaism. What is the only thing which is an actual obligation? An actual obligation from a father to a child is to study Torah with his child. And why is that? Because, as the Torah tells us, when a parent studies Torah with their child, you're not just giving them an idea, but you're connecting them with what the Torah is all about. But even more so. When a person studies Torah with their child, they're giving them an idea, but the idea is giving the child the ability to think for himself and to experience with the father. When, you put the, when the child puts on a yarmulke, okay, the child was a yarmulke, the father was a yarmulke. It's an experience that the child does on his own. But when there's an intellectual knowledge that's still communicating with one another, you're now thinking on the same page, you're experiencing something together. Even more importantly, is not only learning Torah together, but is even to say a story, tell the child the stories, how much more that has an impact on the child to creating and giving that experience. I remember when I, many years ago, going back 30 years ago, I was once in a place called Surfer's Paradise in, uh, in Brisbane, Australia. In, no, in, in Australia, it's, surf, it's, a, it's like the Miami of Australia. There was an old man sitting in shul there, and he comes over to me. I, till this day, I don't even know his name. And he came over to me and he tells me in Yiddish, he says, That's the quote from Shema. You will study with your children and you should teach them the words of the Torah. That's the literal translation. He used to translate, he said, tells me in Yiddish, When you learn with your children, then you have who to talk to. If you have, don't have the connection, if you don't create the connection, if you're just, okay, you put them on the bus, they go to school, you come home, they do that. There's no connection, there's no relationship. There's no stimulating relationship. There's no experience together. If holidays, if Judaism is not a family experience, then what is it? Okay, you do what you want to do. I do football, you do Judaism. Then it's not something we all do. It's not something that we experience together. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about education, is that we have to create an experience for the child that you should not be told what to do, but they should feel what they should do. They should not be just commanded, this is what we do. You can put on tefillin, and the child can put on tefillin, but while he's putting on tefillin, he's thinking about the football, he's thinking about the baseball, he's thinking about everything else but the tefillin. Why? Because he's not experiencing it. When a person studies Torah, it's impossible for you to study Torah, real studying Torah, while you're thinking about football. You have to be on the same page automatically. This is what we see so far. The concept of education that Moshe was telling the Jewish people in this week's Torah reading. Telling them from the moment v'yigadita. doesn't make a difference who the child is. It can be an evil child. It can be an apathetic child. It can be an intellectual child. It can be a simple child. It doesn't make a difference. We all have to experience it on the level of that experiential treatment that you're giving to and educating that child and each person according to his own way. But then you take it a step further. The, to- the Torah tells us that if a person experiences something special in life, they have to bring a thankful uh, 
a sacrifice to God, a, a sacrifice of thanks. It's called a carbon toida. And there are four types of people that have to bring this type of sacrifice. Today, that we don't have a sac- uh, temple anymore, we make the blessing Hagomel. What are those four experiences? If a person goes over the big seas, goes through great deserts, was locked in prison, or is healed from a terrible illness. Those four experiences, a person, after a person survives them, they have to say the blessing Gomel. Some do it even after a woman gives birth, for that reason, because she went through a very challenging time at the time. So, where do we know that it's those four experiences? It doesn't say it in the Torah. In the Torah, it just says, when you have an experience in life, you have to give thanks. Where do we know the four from? So, in Tehillim, Psalm 106, I think it is, um, that it tells us, I'm sorry, Psalm 107, that it details, King David details the four levels, the four different types of dangers that a person can have in their life. And he details it as follows. He starts off saying, one who goes through the desert, then somebody who's stuck in prison, somebody who's sick, and then somebody who crosses the sea. That's the order that he puts it. When the commentaries put it in the actual Torah, where Moses says that you have to bring a thankful offering, they start first with the one that crosses the sea. Rashi, actually, the commentary, puts first one who crosses the sea, then one who crosses through the desert, then one who uh, is uh, ill, and, and then one who's in prison. Why does Rashi change the order? Why doesn't he keep the order that King David kept it in the Psalms? Well, some want to say the reason why King David put it in that order was because he's talking to the people of his time that went through the desert. Now they're in the land of Israel, so he relates to things that happened to their time. Which would ask the question then even more so, why does Rashi change it? And the Rebbe writes that the reason why Rashi changes it is in fact because Rashi is teaching us what kind of teacher Moses was. Moses wasn't just a teacher who just gave information. He wasn't an instructor. But he also looked at how the Jewish people experienced things. What was the first challenge that the Jewish people had as a nation after they left Egypt? Going into the sea. What was the next challenge they had as a nation? going through the desert. When would be the first time that the Jewish people would even have the concept of getting sick? Would be once they come into the land of Israel. And then there was the other part of being in prison, maybe have another time as well. The actual being in prison wasn't as a Jewish nation. The first thing was going down into the sea. Then was going in the desert. Then they may experience getting sick because in the desert they didn't get sick. So Moshe as a teacher, as a teacher par excellence, and that's why he's called Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, our teacher, says, I want to teach you Jews when you have to bring a carbon a sacrifice to give thanks. What does he do? Picks the first experience. You went through a sea. You saw how dangerous it was. You saw what happened to the Egyptians. You're in the desert. It's not normal for us to survive such a desert. It's an experience. This happens to you. This is something that you have to give thanks for to God. And therefore, he continues to talk about these type of ideas where Moshe shows us that when and how do you teach somebody is by the experiences that they had in their own life. The same idea is also when we talk about education. Education doesn't mean schlepping your children to shul or to the Shabbos table or to the Passover Seder. When a parent prepares a beautiful story, a beautiful Shabbat table, there's actually a very phenomenal story which was told. I don't remember which rabbi it was, but there was this woman who complained that her children are not interested in coming to the Shabbos table. I think, I don't know if they say it about the Rebbe, I don't remember exactly. 
And she wasn't, the kids weren't interested in coming to the Shabbos table. They were having a very challenging time with their children. And what happened was that one of their children, unfortunately, left the fold of religion and was no longer uh, observant. And they were very saddened by it. So the rabbi told them the following advice. This coming Shabbos, you're going to ask all the children what they want for Shabbos at the Shabbos table. And you're going to ask them, this one's going to say, okay, so that's what they did. And whatever they want for Shabbos table, that's what you're going to get. So she went beyond Tuesday, she already asked all the children, what do you want? They want gefilte fish, the other one wants brisket, the other one wants chicken. Whatever they wanted was around the Shabbos table. They came to Shabbos table, the kids were so excited. Everything they want, everything they asked for was there. The second week again, one day, a sibling that no longer lived at home called up the parents, they called up the child, one of the children in the family, and asked, what's going on at home? How things? He says, you won't believe it. Our Shabbos table is so exciting, it's so calm, everybody has what they want, you put it in the order, you get it, and that is saying stories. It's an amazing event. He says, what? There's no more yelling, you get to the table, no longer you go in. He says, no, it's like calm, everybody. And he said, let me check this out. And he started coming one Shabbos, a second Shabbos. What happened? What changed? It was no longer the struggle of the fight of schlepping people, but it was giving them the experience of enjoying it and making it their own. This is the quality that Moshe was telling the Jewish people. But it takes it a step further. Many people think, oh, well, I have to give them, what's the most important part in teaching? Is giving them the knowledge that they know, the geometry, the English, the this, the that, and all the other, other stuff. And even in Jewish studies. What's most important? We have to make sure that they know the laws, that they know the Talmud, they know the laws. We shouldn't waste time with any side subjects. There was once an educator from Michigan, one not a Chabad fellow, who happened to be in Brooklyn, New York. This is going back in the 70s. And he came into the Rebbe for a private audience, and the Rebbe asked him, what do you do? So he says, I teach. He says, what subjects do you teach? He says, I teach Chumash, I teach Talmud. And the Rebbe asked him, do you ever tell your students stories of tzaddikim, stories of righteous people? So he said, no, it's a waste of time. We have to make sure we cover ground. There's a lot of ground we have to cover, whether it's this chapter, that chapter, that tractate, that tractate. And to be able to waste the time with saying stories of, the tra- of stories of tzaddikim, we don't have time for that. The Rebbe looks at him and says, he says, studying the Talmud and all the other ideas are very important. But that's giving them the law. But experiencing the law can only be done with stories of tzaddikim. Take a moment every single day and tell them some stories of Sadiqim. He says, okay, I'll try it. He saw, once he started trying it, he says the story himself that I started implementing every single day in my class saying a few stories. And he saw that what the kids not only remembered, but the values that they imparted within themselves was from the stories from they heard. You can learn the same thing in the Code of Jewish Law, but if you tell them a story of an experience of it, that's what they remembered and that's what they took to heart. Today, he is one of these uh, children's tapes that made the stories and he makes stories of, of, of tzaddikim only because of that. This is what Moshe was telling the Jewish people. As important, but if not more, is getting your kids to experience the holiday, the Shabbos, the mitzvahs, the story behind it, telling them the stories is what makes them understand and appreciate because then they see it factually in front of their eyes. The laws are all airy theory. Some I do, some I don't. But when it's a story with an experience, you're part of it, 
and that they will never forget. This is what the story of Passover is all about, and for that reason, Passover is the most celebrated holiday because it's the holiday that is experienced the most.